Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here back with another episode of the Box and One podcast, episode 24, the Jack Bauer tribute special. Uh, but more than anything for me here, this is this is an exciting one for me because I get to have one of my mentors in the industry on here on the podcast. Dan Favalli uh, knows way too much about the NBA and all the goings on there, but uh, a guy who helped break me into the space a little bit more and has given me way too much advice throughout the years, which I have followed to a T and I'm incredibly grateful. Dan, thank you so much for joining us here today. How are you? I am spectacular and all warm and fuzzy inside after that intro. You assigned me too much credit. You, I did nothing for you. And don't tell people that me of all people helped you. Otherwise they might stop listening to you. So, but it's fantastic to see you in the box and one thriving such great content coming out over here. I appreciate that. And, and Dan, uh, Dan and I met years ago at NBA math. Uh, helped get me kind of situated with a little bit more NBA writing over there and have stayed in touch. I've been a frequent guest on his podcast, which definitely check that out. I know you're going to plug all your stuff at the very end here, but uh, at the very least we had to have him on ours. So making sure that we get Dan to, to talk with us today. And we're going to go into the Eastern conference, particularly the teams that are not in the NBA playoffs right now. So there are seven that missed the, missed the postseason. And we're going to set the table for what their offseason should be, particularly with what moves, what personnel decisions are going to be made, and how that's going to relate to draft strategy or what really is going to come up with their, their likelihood to, to fill out their roster with guys that will eventually put them over the top to make the playoffs. But before we get there, we have a time-honored tradition here at the Box and One Podcast, Dan, and you are not immune from it, even though you are a close personal friend. We, we got to ask you this question because it's a rite of passage. You're up three with five seconds to go, and it's the other team's ball. Do you foul? What is it that you would instruct your team to do? One, I don't know why I was surprised when I saw this question in your rundown, knowing you ask everyone. I guess I just somehow assumed that I would be immune from it. I would foul. I I hate watching that, but if I was the coach, I'm absolutely fouling to play to the math. I would probably want to take figure out a way to take some time off the clock, like, can you let them get just sometime before half court, let foul them and try and let some time trickle down. But I'm just not, I'm not chancing it. Um, and I know from a previous podcast you did that you do it by college rules. So that just makes it even easier for me. Like if they're going to inbound it from the other side of the court, I'm absolutely fouling at some point. Yeah. You've got much longer area before they get into scoring zone and, and referees are pretty good at not rewarding that kind of, I feel contact. Oh, I'm going to flip it up from 42 feet and just, see if I can get three free throws out of it. Like everyone knows that's not really a basketball play. So I, I think college, definitely the percentages are in favor. And I, I say that knowing that I would hate watching that. Whenever <laughs> I see teams actually employ in the NBA, I'm like, oh, but I, if I'm a coach, like I absolutely want to win. Well, well you, you know my big thing right now. I'm on a very, very strong crusade to ban the take foul. Hashtag ban the take foul. Like that, it's, it's ruining the most exciting part of the game of basketball, which is transition play. And it's, it's just one of those bugaboos that makes the game a slightly less watchable than I'd like it to be. I hope they address it this off season. They seem to, you know, I mean, I guess it kind of skewed toward, it felt like at the beginning of the season, we were getting a more physical game or like the whistles were different and then they gradually just went back. So I shouldn't say that they addressed the, like those offensive, like, yeah. you know, the, the, what was it? The natural motion of like the scores and the drivers, but I'm hopeful that they'll address the take foul this season because I'm, I'm totally with you. Uh, maybe not as impassioned as you are. I like that hashtag ban the take foul. It, it needs to go though. 100%. And I don't think it's tough 
people have asked me, well, how do you enforce it? This is not a tough thing to monitor. Like it's very clear when it's a take foul. Yep. Yeah, it is. So, uh, but it's funny on points of emphasis and referee changes each year. We used to say when I was coaching at the college level that points of emphasis and referee changes last a month, right? Get through November and then it's back to the way the game's always officiated. We saw that at the NBA this year, right? With all of the shooting fouls and the, you know, pump fake step-ins and lean-ins that James Harden and, you know, everybody else would do. They call it a certain way for the first month and then it goes back to normal. And it feels like we didn't talk about it going back to normal. It was, it's not no. something, it was like a month and a half ago. I was thinking about it. I was like, this just kind of went away and no one said, no one said anything. That's, that's how they get you, right? They, they, you forget about it after a while. And then now it's just back to normal. And now it's no longer a point of emphasis and no one's upset anymore. Hashtag ban the take foul though. That Hashtag ban the take foul. <laughs> Glad you're on board. Well, again, Dan is here today to, as we said, to break down the teams in the Eastern Conference that missed the playoffs. We're going to go over what they need, how their roster is built, what things look like long-term there, maybe some key free agency decisions or even uh, trade demands that might lie ahead. We're going to put seven minutes on the clock for each of the seven teams. And in that time, Dan's going to illuminate us on some of the, the biggest needs that are there for the team heading into the summer. And then as we have some Q&A, some back and forth on where the roster stands, we're going to wrap that segment up by suggesting a couple targets that might fit those teams. And I know Dan being a New York Knicks fan, can't wait to get to that segment of things here. So uh, Dan, are you ready to get going? I, I just want to skip ahead to where you tell me who the Knicks need to draft. That's honestly, I'm ready. We'll, we'll get there eventually, but uh, let's put our seven minutes on the clock and start here with the Orlando magic. They've got the top odds right now in the Eastern Conference of landing the number one overall selection. They went 22 and 60, which was good for a last place in the East. They had two really good rookies this year in Jalen Suggs and Franz Wagner, and a really good second year showing from point guard Cole Anthony. A building block of the organization may as well be Jonathan Isaac as well, really intriguing defensive piece. He missed the entire year due to injury. No one really knows what to expect when he returns. But beyond those four, there's a bunch of solid but unspectacular guys, right? Wendell Carter Jr. has had a little bit of a renaissance and is signed to a great contract with the Magic. Markel Fultz and RJ Hampton complicate the backcourt a little bit, but this is a team that doesn't necessarily have one glaring need, unless there's something I'm missing. So, Dan, I'm going to ask you this to start us off. What is the biggest need here for the Orlando Magic? I feel like they need to establish, like, get an actual – point of attack guy who works on both ends. I know Jalen Suggs did a lot of that this year and we didn't see too much of Marco Fultz. There's Cole Anthony, but maybe it's not even so much as getting someone different as a clarity of how they're going to attack from the point of attack. Um, they obviously, I feel like they simultaneously have too much of everything and not enough of anything because you could make a case that they need more of like three and D wings on this team too, depending on how you feel about uh, Gary Harris isn't going to stay there. Terrence Ross doesn't fit that bill. Uh, the big man situation is odd because we haven't seen Jonathan Isaac in like eight years. And I would, you know, at least he gives you the idea of this defensive building block. So that's something to build out from. And I think I was really impressed with Wendell Carter Jr. This season. Um, My RJ Hampton stock is at an all time low, which is very sad. There's a cadence to his game. I just love, I feel like there needs to be just like clarity of, of role and function on the perimeter. And I I do think Franz Wagner and um, Jalen Suggs can give you some of that. 
but I don't, is like, do they view Cole Anthony as a compliment to those two? Do they, do they even view Markel Fultz as a compliment to those two? Or do they need to try and draft someone with a higher end outcome from those adva- that advantage point or look for that in free agency? Since they do, if they want, they can have a boatload of cap space. Yeah, the tough part with where, where Orlando is at in the rebuilding process is they have a lot of those B-plus pieces, but they don't have a lot of those A or A-plus building blocks for their franchise. Jalen Suggs was a guy I was really high on a year ago, but injuries and kind of a subpar start to the season, it's hard to know exactly whether he can be the guy offensively. Like you said, there's a, a lot of a lot of things there that need to be sorted out in the backcourt. And when you have Hampton and Anthony and Suggs, all his guys in their first couple of years, and then Markel Fultz, who has one clear limitation, it's really hard to know how do you get all those pieces to mesh together? And if Jalen Suggs really is the guy to build around, how do you space the floor properly when you have, you know, a non-shooter at the other guard spot or somebody else that wants to have the ball in their hands? So uh, a lot of stuff to, to sort through on, on their side of things. Uh, wh- who would you rather have, Wagner or Suggs? Like after watching them as, as rookies, is there one guy that you're a little bit higher on? I know Franz Wagner has like a very loyal following because I've been added on Twitter by them. I, it's still Jalen Suggs. Just watching him, there's like he was clearly overwhelmed as a like this number one option where it was like there are lineups where he was the point guard but wasn't the point guard. That I feel like that dude when he's healthy is just going to get it. Like there is real pressure he can put on set defenses, and if his, you know, if he ends up being like the second best player on your team or the number two creator that's still a pretty ideal outcome to where I don't think Franz Wagner, who was a lot better in his role defensively than I thought he was going to be. And he definitely has more like F you to his game when he puts the ball on the floor than I had thought coming in, but the Jalen Suggs stealing to me is still exponentially higher. Even if you don't think that he's going to be the best player on the best version of your team. Yeah. Yeah. So right now, what, what do you think the magic need a little bit more of? Is it offense? Is it defense? Like, can they build a really strong defensive identity if they just get one more guy? Do they need a rim protector? Is Carter good enough for that role? Which side of the ball would you expect them to try to address more if, uh, if they're trying to take a, a guy that helps them in one specific end? I would think offense, um, the big if they're being, I'm just assuming that they believe Jonathan Isaac is going to be able to play semi-consistently because if he can't, that changes the entire discussion. But I liked what I saw from Wendell Carter Jr.'s mobility on defense this year. And like I said, Franz Wagner was better than I expected. I think Jalen Suggs ends up being a really solid defender for his position one day. You have Fultz as well. And this defense, I think, was 17th in points allowed per possession. When you don't have Isaac, Fultz misses most of the season. You're running out Cole Anthony for a trillion minutes. And then you have rookies and Suggs and Wagner playing these big roles. That's like pretty impressive to me and so i'm pretty clearly if i'm in charge of the magic it's it's offense 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 this offseason so and the reason i ask that i think that the guard spot is pretty clouded right now in orlando they got a lot of guys if they can help it probably don't want to add another one into the mix especially a young one since they already have so many young guys there the top three players in this draft class by most consensus feel are bigger guys chet holmgren who's seven feet tall Paolo Bencaro, who's about 6'11", and Jabari Smith, who's 6'10". Now, all of them have really different strengths, right? So Chet Holmgren is more of a defensive-minded 4 and 5, who's cut from the same physical mold as an Evan Mobley. 
Paolo Bancaro is your isolation scorer, almost like a Blake Griffin end of his Clippers career guy who can just create offense in a ton of different ways. And then there's Jabari Smith, more of the pick and pop threat, a really good shooter who almost reminds me of a Cleveland Kevin Love, like during those title reigns of really, really would be excellent as the third guy around two primary options. Of those three guys in the descriptions that you hear, is there one in particular that you think fits best in Orlando? I think it's probably Paolo, right? I could see if just because the versatility Jonathan Isaac in theory gives you on offense, and then maybe watching the Cavs this, th- this season, are you empowered to be like, let's go get Chet Holmgren and we're going to pair him with Wendell and Jonathan Isaac in the same lineup? You could try it, um, but from a fit perspective, it feels like it's very clearly Paolo. I just don't know if one of these guys is a lot higher on your board than the other. Um, as the magic, even though you do have some interesting pieces in place, I don't know that you're at the point of your rebuild where you can justify drafting for fit necessarily. I totally agree with that. Absolutely agree with that. I think that, you know, Chet is a guy I think really highly of Paolo, probably the cleanest fit there of the three, but at the end of the day, if you end up with a Jabari Smith, that's a 40% three point shooter who's six ten and really spaces the floor. That's a really good piece to have, especially if you're evaluating the guards that you've already drafted for young guys where it might get dicey for the magic. And that's our seven minute timer here is if they fall out of the top three, then it can ends up being a little bit more of a run of guards or wings. And they're going to have to make some sort of a decision about who they build around, what they end up doing with the pick and what they kind of prioritize there are ways to get the right quote unquote pieces that mesh with who they already have. But I'm inclined to agree with your assessment, Dan, none of these guys have thus far proven that they're the talent that you have to build around to the point where it should preclude you from taking anybody wherever your draft selection is. As since you agree with me, I clearly agree with you. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, seven minutes on the clock as we move forward to what I think is actually the most interesting team to talk about here in the Eastern Conference. That's the Detroit Pistons because they found that one superstar to really build everything around in Cade Cunningham. Now, whether he wins Rookie of the Year or not is a debate for another day that I frankly don't want to get into, but he is deserving of having an entire roster and franchise built around him. There are a couple of guys there who are emerging as really good younger pieces with him, like a Sadiq Bey. Then there are others who are you know good enough to be on the roster and, and getting rotation minutes, but you don't necessarily think they might be starters on a championship caliber team, right? Killian Hayes is Isaiah Stewart's Marvin Bagley's like good players who have, who have helped Detroit in a little bit of ways, but not that get over the hump, become a playoff team and a contender type piece. What I talked to a lot of Pistons fans and, and Matt way, who is a you know, friend of the podcast and he came on earlier and talked about two glaring needs for Detroit, a rolling big man who can be a threat above the rim and protect the rim on the other end and just shooting floor spacing because they clearly lack it. Out of those two, which one do you think is a bigger need for this Detroit Pistons team and, quite frankly, for Cade Cunningham? I think it's shooting just because that's the easiest way to create more space for Cade Cunningham to operate inside the arc and improve his decision-making. And he was, as the season went on, like he was already A++ in his decision-making. If you can give someone who has such a command over the game – Uh, reliable, just guys who don't need to necessarily have the ball in their hands and can knock down standstills or knock down shots off motion. I think that makes you a lot more dangerous because going the other route, while there's, there's clearly a case for it. 
Um, I just don't know how important that is when I feel like it's probably a little bit easier to find where shooting is at such a premium nowadays that that feels like it would make the the much bigger impact for Detroit around Cade Cunningham specifically anyway. Well, I'm inclined to agree with you. Again, we're, we're firing on all cylinders tonight here, Dan, but I have this theory in my head that I've been thinking about with the Detroit Pistons. Cade Cunningham is essentially a six foot seven, six foot eight point guard. And, you know, they've got length and strength with Sadiq Bay. They've got length with Killian Hayes on the perimeter and a really intriguing piece, which we'll talk about in a second here with Jeremy Grant. You can build a switch everything really long, all above average defenders type of lineup, similar to what the Boston Celtics have done. It's not quite going to be as good because they don't have like the Marcus Smarts or the Robert Williams yet. But part of this to me is thinking about, is this team going to be built around as much of a defensive identity as it might be, hey, we just need floor spacing on offense? Because you can find shooters at different points in the draft and free agency, making different deals, whatever you might have to do. But are they going to really prioritize athletic profile that we know Troy Weaver has been drawn to in the past and or a defensive identity that they can build? I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, that was a great point when I saw you put this in the rundown that I hadn't really considered. And it felt like this is not a like a like a perfect mirror image, but it felt like Troy Reaver was almost at least trying to go that like sized route when you just look at, you know, you he had Jeremy Grant, Sadiq Bey, uh, Isaiah Livers, and even like Isaiah Stewart is only 6'9". Again, doesn't fit the mold of like we're talking the Celtics specifically, but it felt like they might have been going that direction. And it's an interesting uh, way to think about it because of how good Cade Cunningham was on offense already if you just surrounded him with all of these switchy defenders and the fact that he is probably, you know, this is not Luka Doncic has gotten a little bit better defensively, but like Cade Cunningham is going to be so much better on defense in his career than a Luka Doncic. And that opens up a world more options for you. Like it would for uh, like it does already for the Celtics. When you look at their two and three best players, I'm such a sucker for floor spacing and having that room um, that I might, still lean towards the shooting but that is such an interesting point and when you see how it's kind of worked out for not only Boston but this is a different brand of like-sized players in Cleveland when they're just playing all these bigs at once and they they punted on shooting essentially with Isaac Okoro by giving him minutes that's you know it's worked so I wouldn't fault them to go that route I think I'm just so entranced by Cade Cunningham's game I kind of wonder what he would do if they gave him even better you know, this is to say normal floor balance. Yeah, well, we're just fans of good basketball, right? And that's part of what it is with Kate Cunningham. We want to see him at the height of his powers. And it's easy for us to envision that just with the ball in his hands and surrounded by a bunch of shooters. Uh, we, it's a formula that works for guys like LeBron or Luka Doncic. And I think Cade is that type of player, what he's going to develop into. I, I think the linchpin of the defensive conversation kind of is Jeremy Grant, right? Like he would enable them to play in that type of way because he is a good defender. He is long. He can guard multiple positions, but his timeline doesn't necessarily sync up with how the Pistons might be going through this rebuild. We've heard his name in trade rumors for much of the last year, year and a half. What can we expect that market or those phone calls, conversations to be like for the Pistons over the next few months, particularly through the summer? Is he a guy that is probably done in Detroit and they're going to move on from how does this unfold for the Pistons? I would think he's done just because he was so embedded in the trade rumor mill. If he never gets injured this season, I think he's probably already gone. Um, there is the issue of his next team is going to have to think about his extension and the idea of paying um, nine figures to Jeremy Grant over four years. That's just for people who watched him in OKC and, and Philadelphia and even Denver, like that's a pretty harrowing proposition at the same time. 
this free agency class is so I'm going to say low key because I don't want to say bad. It's so low key and there's just no cap space out there. I would anticipate. And when I've posed it to people, normally my ideas get bounced back pretty quickly. This one, they've been more receptive to in the sense they think it's going to be a more competitive trade market. And so if you're holding um, a guy who can plug and play anywhere, even if he wants to have more touches on offense, which he clearly does, I would think that they're going to be getting a ton of phone calls and we're probably going to see them get compensation that would have been similar had he never gotten injured and they traded him in the middle of the season when he, he had more time left on his deal just because they have a supply of of someone that every team clearly wants and there's just not a ton of those player types available in free agency or on the trade market for that matter and that puts the pistons in a really good spot to be negotiators to be operating from a position of leverage a little bit and again whether they will we could sit here and go back and forth on all the time but the the fact that they have the option to do so really helps them from two standpoints. One, they're going to get an asset in return that's pretty favorable. Two, they can still take best player available in this draft and not worry about him as a result. So when we talked about those top three guys, Chad Holmgren, Paolo Bancaro, and Jabari Smith, I think that all three of them kind of make sense as four men in Detroit, where you can put them there, you can really build an organization around them and say, okay, this is an upgrade from Jeremy. Let's move on from Jeremy now, cash out on assets, build around this younger guy. Now we've got him and Cade to really be the cornerstones of our franchise moving forward. They're still going to be in okay shape, even if they fall out of that top five. Because I think that athletic guard Jaden Ivey would be a really intriguing fit next to Cade. He's still long and athletic to give them some defensive benefits, but it gives just this punch of hyperdrive that uh, the offense might need in transition if they can't surround them with shooting. And then... There are other guys that are really intriguing who, as we get down here in the list, we'll talk about. But even Shaden Sharp, who officially declared today for the 2022 NBA draft, would be a really unique piece to put next to Cade Cunningham. So a lot of different directions that the Pistons can go. We got to reset our clock here with the Indiana Pacers, who finished the season 25 and 57. And they they did the, the end season tank the right way. They lost their final 10 games. They got into the top five likelihood here of getting a, uh, a really, really high draft pick. And they're kind of starting this rebuild. And, and really, again, I use the term hyperdrive. They punched it in the hyperdrive by trading Demona Sabonis away to Sacramento, taking back Buddy Heald's contract, getting a really good young player in Tyrese Halliburton. And there's a lot of intrigue as far as I'm concerned with guys on this roster. I like Halliburton. I like rookie Chris Duarte. I was a huge fan of Jalen Smith when he came out of the draft and, Isaiah Jackson showed some flashes. Even Miles Turner's not that old. Uh, they got a lot of options that they could go in, but they also have, as opposed to, you know, Orlando might have one or two guys and Detroit has Jeremy Grant. They have a lot of veterans that they could dangle in the trade market this year. So, Dan, what, what can we expect the, the MO of this front office to be? Are they going to try to look younger? Are they going to try to really sell off some of their veterans and either get more for future or current first round picks and younger guys, or do they think that this can be something where they one quick fix here, a, a top five or six pick, and then all of a sudden they're back in the playoff race next year. I leaned towards the latter because historically that not to this degree, that's what Indiana has done is these have been quick reboots and retoolings, but that report from Mark Stein saying that the Pacers have essentially made it known they're going to trade Malcolm Brogdon. That made me rethink it a little bit. They just signed him to an extension. I know he's on the older side, has had his injury issues, including in Indiana. But if you're willing to move him, 
you're not improving your team as good as Tyrese Halliburton and Chris Duarte are. I guess you could try to sweeten a package where he's the primary salary anchor and you're actually going out there as a buyer, but that's not Indiana's MO either. And so if, if he's going to be available, I would imagine that also Miles Turner and Buddy Heald are going to be up for grabs. And it kind of leads me to believe that they're thinking about making this more of a gradual rebuild than we initially expected. And I think there's that that's perfectly fine. Like you said, they did the, we, can we call it the ethical tank job since we're talking about Pascal Siakam as the ethical 30 point scorer, uh, where they played some of their key guys still. So it wasn't egregious where they were, you know, Miles Turner was out, but he was actually injured, uh, but they let Tyrese Halliburton play until the end of the season. So if they want to go the gradual route, I don't fault them. Uh, I just, I look at this Tyrese Halliburton is ready now. And Chris Duarte on the older side for what he was a rookie. Miles Turner is only 25 going on 26. Um, I know he's going to need a new deal soon, but I feel like they have an opportunity to get right back in this immediately. Perhaps it depends on who they get in the draft. My guess would be, even though maybe I wouldn't go this way and I'm the king of starting over, I wouldn't necessarily go this way, but it sounds like they might actually be, be going that route. You know, it, it's curious because of the Rick Carlisle hire last summer, right? Like y- you think that a coach like that's going to come in and be, we got to compete now. I don't want to have the patience at this point in my career to be on really the starting point of an overall rebuild. Uh, so it, it's it's going to be fascinating to, to watch. And I know they've come out and said Carlisle's no intention of leaving and and all of these things, but it, just a fascinating- on it, which was also weird is just yeah. like, does that mean there was smoke there or that he's that they're really going to rebuild this thing and they're trying to mentally prepare people for it? Yeah. It, again, where there's smoke, there's fire, but really fascinating subplot to a lot of this. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about, about a lot of these younger, younger guys. And, and I think Tyrese Halliburton was clearly the, the best guy in the group after they got him back at the midseason trade with the Kings. Is, is there anybody really worth drafting around? Like not necessarily saying if you end up with a top three pick, you don't take best player available. But as you get down, maybe they slip a slot or two in the lottery. They're picking seventh or eighth. Is is there a position that they should avoid? Is it build around Halliburton? Like, is he that type of franchise game changer for them moving forward? I think he could be, but I think he scales to pretty much whatever you want to do. And so if it's someone who's going to take the ball out of his hands or quote unquote plays the same position, uh, he, can, he can play like the one or the two. And it, it doesn't matter. And he can play all I like, I didn't think the Kings needed to make a decision between De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Halliburton. That's an invented choice um, that I think that they created. So I'm, I'm of the mind that you can make Tyrese Halliburton the focal point of your rebuild, but I don't think that he actually needs to impact your draft methodology because he fits in so many different iterations of what your team could potentially be. Yeah. yeah. I apologize for that there folks, a couple uh, small interruptions here on our end, but uh, I, I totally agree with you, right? Like Halliburton is the ideal connector piece in, in every single way, building a franchise to the point where he's going to fit next to literally everybody and anybody that you draft. So instead of thinking about players on their roster to build around, let's think about play style, right? Is this some a team that can rebuild and go in a direction of being super fun and up-tempo, or is that just not Rick Carlisle's MO, and as a result, they're going to try to get a little bit bigger, a little bit more slow-down tempo, like those really smart, cerebral guys like a Halliburton who can execute anything that he wants in the half court? 
I feel like with the players they have now, they should be tilting towards playing faster and more free flowing. And they were actually after the trade deadline, like no team was faster um, after the other team made a shot. So we're talking about like the defense has a chance to get set and their offensive possessions are quicker than anyone in the league. And yet on live balls, turnovers, defensive rebounds, like they weren't looking to push, which is kind of like Rick Carlisle's MO is like, let's get into our offense after that. So I'm curious if there's like warring ideologies there at some point, I would prefer to see them just looking at, you know, if, if we're assuming Duarte is still going to be there, um, Isaiah Jackson, even Miles Turner, Tyrese Halliburton, uh, my favorite O'Shea Brissett on that team. Like, I feel like those are guys that you should look to be more advantageous when it comes to pushing the pace in certain situations. But just to, when we look at Rick Carlisle's track record, those aren't really the teams that he's ever sort of coached. And if I'm misremembering that, someone please correct me. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I, I certainly agree with you. This is a guy who tried to turn Monte Ellis into like the slowest paced guy in the league. Like that's, that's just kind of how he's been in the past. And, and look, the, part of the reason I ask is because when you slip out of the top five, you've got a couple different directions that you can go with some of the guys there. So I think Jaden Ivey is somebody that a lot of Pacers fans are keying in on because he's from Indiana. He played at Purdue. He's super athletic and shows these John Morant slash Russell Westbrookie flashes of just how good of an athlete he is, but he needs to play up-tempo and needs to play in transition. And as much as I love him as a prospect and think that he's actually a top three guy, like I have him ahead of Jabari Smith on my personal board, he needs he and Rick Carlisle, I can just see it coming. Like that's, that's going to be one of those really frustrating things to watch for a rebuilding team. I think he and Halliburton would be an unbelievable fit, but the Pacers have to navigate a lot of that stuff out. A couple other names I'd throw out there for Pacers fans, just to be aware of Keegan Murray from Iowa, insanely productive three slash four man who uh, can shoot the ball well and, and is an adequate defender in a lot of different ways. And then the last one I'd throw out there is, is actually Benedict Matherin. A uh, really, really good player out of Arizona. Your quintessential off-ball scorer, good three-point shooter, but also a, a really good athlete who has some upside to be a self-creator. I think that Halliburton surrounded by Duarte and uh, and Matherin would be a really intriguing way to start their rebuild or at the very least give them a little bit more upside to win some games next year. So quite the tank job done by the Indiana Pacers at the end of the season because there's a 10-game – I was going to say, sorry to interrupt, but probably one of the most fascinating teams heading into the offseason, too, just based off the sheer number of directions they might go. And, and all of the trade packages that they could put together with their guys. And, and look, there's a 10-game gap between them and the next team in the Eastern Conference. So we're making a big leap here from teams that are possibly or more likely to be picking in the top five to those that are maybe later tail end of the lottery just with their draft picks might fall. And, and next is the Washington Wizards here. They have a certified superstar in Bradley Beal. And they made one of the most intriguing in-season trades this year by getting Kristaps Porzingis. This is a team that has a lot of big bodies who deserve minutes, but not a ton of ways to play them all together. Uh, there are a ton of just role players that have very little separation from each other in terms of, I want that one to play 32 minutes and the other one to play 16. They don't have that. Uh, they got a ton of guys that should play 20 to 28 and no glaring holes other than the point guard spot. Because when they traded Russell Westbrook, that's been an area that they've been really trying to, to replace Spencer Dinwiddie didn't work out and they didn't take any really good guards back from Dallas in that deal. So Dan, I'll ask you this to start off here. 
Is there urgency around Bradley Beal's timeline to try to go after a point guard, whether that's via trade, via free agency, or do they have the patience to draft somebody here and bank on the long game working in that regard? I think there has to be urgency just because Bradley Beal wrapped up his age 28 season now, and you're about to give him a presumably a max deal that's going to you know run him through his early 30s. And how long is, if you want to rebuild this thing around him, what does that actually look like? How long does it take? And they're already kind of towing a fine line because if you are relying on someone you're drafting to make a contribution, I do think it's important that they are a good fit for Bradley Beal after you've now paired him with so many point guards that weren't the ideal fits. And like even John Wall and him had a productive partnership. John Wall was never the perfect guy to play alongside Bradley Beal, nor was Russell Westbrook, nor was it Spencer Dinwiddie was not. Uh, Ish Smith certainly isn't. So I do think they have to factor that in, at least when they're thinking about their free agency and trade plans. But given where they are in the lottery, since we're not talking about like, a, unless they jump up, obviously, since we're not talking about a premier pick, I don't have an issue with them drafting for fit. And if you're intending to pay and keep Bradley Beal, I would almost argue that's what you should do. Interesting. So on that conversation, what type of player do you think fits best to Beal? Like it's, it's probably got to be somebody who can both lighten the creation burden from him and be able to play off ball space the floor a little bit in those times when he wants to play through ball screens, handoffs, or, or be a little bit more of an isolation guy. Like what do you think is the best type of player to go next to Beal? I think someone in the not naming these actual targets, but like a Tyrese Maxey or Tyrese Halliburton, like someone in that vein to where maybe you don't want them to run your entire offense, which is great because Bradley Beal is there to do some of that, but he also alleviates a lot of the, um, they would alleviate a lot of his workload. And you're also dealing with, with Spencer Dinwiddie, at least before he got to Dallas, wasn't really helping space the floor. Those, those types of guards are people that can help you space the floor. And I was curious to see whether they would try to figure out a way to get in on the, the Jalen Brunson sweepstakes this summer, uh, given if they are, again, married to Bradley Beal's timeline. I think Brunson would be a, an ideal fit there in Washington. I'm just, I have a huge man crush on him because he has pristine footwork and it's like exactly everything that we try to teach our guys here at the, the school that I coach at. So I love Brunson and I'd love to see him in Washington, but I'm also curious about again, how the wizards clear cap space, how they maximize some of their assets, because I'm just going to read you a list of the, the bigger wings, the guys that play kind of three through five for this wizards team right now. Kentavious Caldwell Pope. Denny Avia, Kyle Kuzma, Rui Hachimura, Kristaps Porzingis, Daniel Gafford, Thomas Bryant. Those are probably all guys who deserve minutes in some form or fashion. Like, Dan, help us sort through all of this. Is there anybody that's going to be a free agent and off the books? Anybody that is likely to be traded? Like, how do they, as an organization, consolidate some of those pieces and get a better fitting roster around Bradley Beal that can make a postseason push next year? I guess it'll help that Thomas Bryant is going to come off the books for them. And so that takes care of some of the logjam up front. When you mentioned specifically though, like the, you're mentioning all those wings, having so many of them is probably a good issue to have insofar as it's even an issue, but I guess you can look at, you know, Contavious Colo Pope only as a partial guarantee. I don't know why you would get rid of them. Uh, Kyle Kuzma is a player option after next season. So those are both guys I could see you looking to move. I am all the way in on Denny Avdia. And I was a little bit disappointed that they didn't give him more offensive responsibility soon enough after the Kristaps Porzingis trade. I think you keep him because of what he has shown defensively. Um, so I think Kuzma and KCP would be on the block if this team is looking to go the more gradual route. Otherwise, I think the low hanging fruit here is if you, if you really like Porzingis and he played well with them, 
you should look at moving Daniel Gafford. Like, can you give OKC – like, does OKC want all of these picks? Would they do 30 and 34 for Gafford? Like, they need a big – I don't know if that's something that's feasible. And then I'm not out on Rui Hachimura, but, like, that's the other low-hanging fruit is it doesn't feel like he's a part of their long-term plan. And so if you don't want to deal with sort of the, the minutes politics, selling low on him would be the way to go. Yeah. Uh- I think that there's definitely something there with Hachimura. And, and again, I, I'm with you. I really like Avia. I think Porzingis popped really well with the Wizards when he when he ended up getting there. And uh, and Still I don't not know. not efficient post up option though. Let's just make that let's make that clear. No, we're not just going to be hashtag ban the take foul. We're going to hashtag ban the Porzingis <laughs> post up. But uh, yeah, I don't know if Rui goes back. Right, he's one guy that that could be on the block just with how everything happened outside of. Of, of basketball this year. And, and I think the biggest reason I ask these questions are there should be some urgency. You're right to build around Bradley Beal and try to contend for the playoffs next year. If they don't think that they can draft a playoff caliber point guard or have the ability to free up funds to sign a guy like a Jalen Brunson and what has been described as a, uh, what, what did you call it earlier? A, a low key free agent class. Yeah, I think that's the kindest way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> like, how, how do they end up getting this point guard and somebody else in the backcourt that can really tighten up this glaring hole that they have? And, and maybe it's trading one of their guys on the roster right now for a veteran and offloading. And maybe it's Kuzma and Gafford for a smaller pick and a point guard that can play right away. I, I don't really know. I'm not the, the tradeologist that you are in a lot of those ways. But for draft purposes, it's really important to try to think about because it's going to dictate what they do if they're picking 10th or 11th, which right now they're slated for the, the 10th overall selection. Uh, there are a couple guards that are going to be available in that realm. I think a guy like Ty Ty Washington or Dyson Daniels would make some sense for them. I'm a big fan of Dyson Daniels fit next to Bradley Beal. He's a little bit more of that Lonzo ballish connector piece where as soon as he adds a consistent three-point shot, he is a winning player through and through. Um, there's our timer for the Wizards. The, the other thing through this is if they don't go that direction and try to draft a guard and they're going to make more of an aggressive play through trade or through free agency, what is the other really position for them to try to draft, right? Because they have so many of these other pieces. There's a log jam anywhere else you put a lottery pick trying to gain for minutes, particularly as you and I both do really like Denny Avia. How do you make sure that you don't kind of make him a little bit less relevant in their long-term plans? Because he's a really good defender, a really good type of player, and somebody that uh, that I hope they don't they don't build around. Any closing thoughts here on the Wizards? I am curious if they could try to straddle the two lines where it's you know Mike Conley is probably going to be available over the offseason because the Jazz are they're going to implode. Like this is just it's time to admit it. And even beyond that, you mentioned what would be the position if a point guard, because you don't give up the equity if Dame becomes available. Um, I guess I would like Brogdon here, but it's like, what are you giving up if you have to give up a ton of equity and they're not a star in the, in their, you know, in their prime and getting their prime. It's, it gets weird. Like Brogdon's not the player who's going to put you over the top is my point. Could you go for like the, the point wingish, like what does Gordon Hayward cost from Charlotte? It's kind of a stopgap with two years. And their, their money matching is all of a sudden weird because they don't have bad contracts on the books now. Um, so that makes it more difficult. But like maybe that's the type of player you go after where it's Gor- the idea of Gordon Hayward, where no, he is not the point forward he used to be. He's clearly just not as quick. Um, but that's at least a way to diversify your offense a little bit without infringing upon your future or any one player's development. 
Yeah, it's funny. I look at the CJ McCollum trade and I think that the Wizards could have easily ponied up a similar type of offer to get him in Washington and how perfect that would have been next to Bradley Beal. Right. Uh, I, I again, I don't know what's out there. I feel like a Brogdon move would be very similar to what they did last year with Dinwiddie. Right. Like it's not a put you over the top clearly type of piece. And when they tried that with a guy like Westbrook, that was more born out of John Wall stuff, but it was also um, not Worked a very out. good fit. Yeah, worked yeah. out for them too. <laughs> it did, it did. But Dan, are you ready for the next team here? Yes, I am ready. Our thirty-seven and forty-five New York Knickerbockers. I don't want to pull any punches here, but uh, this was a big step back this year for the Knicks after a, a pretty good uh, COVID year a year ago. Julius Randle did, did not make an All Star team. Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier did not live up to the hype. Derek Rose got hurt, but we got to see a lot of the younger guys. And I do really like RJ Barrett and Emmanuel quickly. Obi Toppin showed some flashes. We know at this point what Mitchell Robinson can do as a shot blocker, rim runner, roller type of big man. And there are some other really intriguing young guys that you want to see kind of get minutes on this roster, the Deuce McBrides and the Cam Reddishes of the world. What the hell do these Knicks need in order to turn the corner, Dan? Like you watch more Knicks basketball than I do. Give us the break. Like, what does this team just need? This is going to sound like a cliche, but they need a direction and they don't have one right now because you have this mishmash of intriguing young players who a lot of them, you weren't willing to play until your season was lost. And then these veterans where we were actually touting the fact that the Knicks signed okay veterans to deal that deals that could eventually be traded like is that what constitutes a win after you were just the fourth seed in the eastern conference and they clouded their future by going that direction they made it even more odd by making the cam reddish trade and like that looks like an abomination of a deal now after he got hurt got hurt and so i do think they need to they need to if they want to be like a team that's a quasi contender then it's time to go out cash in your chips make the trade for whichever big name becomes available not necessarily what I would suggest or like, let's see what the young kids can actually give you to where if you're not going to move Julius Randle, because he might have one of the five or six worst contracts in the NBA beginning next season. Um, he was so bad for most of the year in his body language that I, I honestly hope everything in his life is okay. Like that's how demoralizing of a performance he had for much of this, this season for them. And because you committed that money, it does sort of change the parameters of how you flesh out this team if you're not going to move him, you need to at least de-emphasize him to give guys like they already gave RJ Barrett more control. We need to make sure that Emmanuel quickly has agency over the offense. Um, even with Derek Rose coming back, I would also argue if your livelihood in 2022 is tied to Derek Rose remaining healthy, like there's probably a flaw in your team building process. So they have so many issues and I don't expect them to actually rebuild. That's what they should do is they should keep all these young guys, see what, RJ does is a number one option with quick or maybe a one, a one B thing with Emmanuel quickly. They have a lottery pick this year. They have other picks um, and eat up a couple of bad seasons. I just don't think they're going to do that. And I think what they're ultimately going to do is double down in some form. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier about Cleveland playing the two big lineup and showing that that's viable in the NBA. The rest of the league seems to have been trending towards really playing an interchangeable three and four, right? Just a big wing, a, a guy like a Jay Crowder, who has been on so many really good teams playing that type of position over the last few years and made it to the NBA finals with Phoenix. New York is in really a situation where they do neither. 
right? They have like a bigger four who's not big in the defensive length, like you know, rim protector. We've got two monster defenders out there since, but he's also not super quick to be able to guard other wings in long stretches. So both, and that's not just a Julius Randall thing, by the way, that's OB Toppin as well. It's they the way that the depth in one position players, which is pretty hard to do in this. Day and age. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really unique roster construction where they got a couple smaller guys like Kemba Walker on the roster. And it's like, okay, so now how do you, how do you construct a defense around them? You're not going to be switchable, which means, okay, Julius Randall and Obi Toppin when they're playing the four are going to get a little bit exposed in some areas with where they just can't keep up with guys in foot speed. Um, can Randall play the five? Like, is, is that something that the Knicks can try to do to salvage some of this? And, and I guess a follow-up question, would Tibbs ever consider trying to do something like that? I do think he could play the five and it will be a disaster defensively, but you're not really built to be like an exceptional defensive team. I know like Quentin Grimes is going to be good. If Cam Reddish is healthy, RJ Barrett has shown improvement over the past couple of years there. But if you put, Randall at the five like that's an area where you can actually create a mismatch which you don't really do in any of your other positions on offense right now in part because you are playing Obi Toppin at the four or even Julius Randall at the four where those there are people that can guard both of those guys and the way they move on or off the ball and I also think if Julius Randall's the center it kind of forces you at least I would think to have him be used as a ball screener more rather than someone who's going one-on-one or you need to send screens for him. And part of their problem was if you want to play him alongside a traditional big that, or a big, like that big needs to be able to shoot. And Obi Toppin looked a little bit better there, but they weren't playing them together. The defense would be even worse in that scenario. And like Mitchell Robinson, Jericho Sims, Taj corner, three point shooter, extraordinaire, Taj Gibson. They're not those guys. So I think you could play him at the five. Do I think Tibbs would consider it? Absolutely. Positively unequivocally 100% now. Is Mitchell Robinson a guy we're throwing the bag at? Like, is he a, the center position is always one up for debate in basketball in terms of just how scarce it really is, because you can find replacement level centers who are much cheaper than throwing a big extension at somebody. How much might Mitchell Robinson command? I don't really know, but is he even worth whatever that number is going to be for the Knicks? Or can you just replace whatever value he brings with somebody else slash it might just be better to go smaller with Randall anyway? Yeah, I think that's the best way to frame it is I don't know if he optimizes the construction of your team at a higher salary. If he costs you, and I hate framing it this way, I want players to get paid, yada, yada, yada. But if he costs you anything near what Robert Williams III got in Boston, and that's that's a bargain contract. And I had Knicks fans were talking to me like, oh, like he does a lot of the same things Robert Williams III does. It's like, no, 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 no. He doesn't do any of the same things that, like they can both finish at the rim, but uh, Time Lord does a bunch of other stuff. And if you ask Mitchell Robinson to make any sort of decision, on offense outside of a finishing above the rim, it's going to be a catastrophe. So is he worth more than he was making? Absolutely. And the market will inevitably dictate how much he earns. But if you get past mid-level exception money with him, I'd rather move forward with, you know, let's see what you have in Jericho Sims. You still have Nerlens Noel on the books for another year. Um, do you draft a big wherever you land up or do you just sign another one? Or as you already mentioned, can we really just see some Julius Randle at the five? Like, he, like, let's at least see it. If it's not going to work, let's at least see it. Yep. And, and I think related to that is trying to figure out who to draft and where, right? Like if, if the Knicks are committed to Robinson, they probably don't take a guy like Jalen Duran out of Memphis if he ends up following them or Mark Williams out of Duke. Two really good big men that I have 
in this class as lottery type prospects. The same thing goes for a manual quickly. I see this huge movement on Twitter for stop mocking Ty Ty Washington, another point guard to the New York Knicks, because everybody really likes Emmanuel quickly. And I was a huge quickly guy before the draft two years ago, and he's done nothing but exceed expectations in New York. But is he really that point guard of the, of the future for the Knicks, somebody that you can hand the entire reins of an offense to, or, or at least play for 30 minutes on a good team, or is he better served in more of a Jordan Poole, Jamal Crawford, like super scorer off the bench type of role. Yeah, I think it's the Jordan Poole would probably be his optimized outcome. And that's with, he's never going to be as good as a finisher. Jordan Poole probably still be a better passer, but quickly has that stop and start floater game. He has the quick first step. Um, His off the dribble jumper is probably ahead of Jordan Poole's at this point, just when you look at the quickness of it and the range on it. So a similar outcome to that, but he should not. And look, if we're being honest, I love RJ Barrett too no one on this roster should be a determining factor in who you're going to draft. And I think the Knicks have gotten in their own way a few times where to, I don't want to oversimplify the process, but like sometimes it makes sense to just take the bigger guards who can dribble and shoot and create. Like why weren't you taking Tyrese Halliburton? Why weren't you drafting Shea Gilgis Alexander? Those were decisions where it's not me, you know, being revisionist or having the benefit of hindsight. Like those were very obvious moves to make at the time and they just didn't. And so if that, I don't know enough about this draft class to say that, but if they think there's, even if he's on the smaller end, like if you think there's someone who's a better floor general, like forget about score, but just floor general who can have command over your offense. If you think that guy's in this draft in your range, just take him. Yeah. Yeah. No, obvious to take Shea Gilgis Alexander to steal a line from my friend, Nikias Duncan. Is that Kevin Knox slander? I think it is. I was, I was all in on Shea in the moment, and I just don't – I guess to the Knicks' credit there, at least Kevin Knox was like 6'9", and that was like sort of a like novel concept for the Knicks at the time. But I just – they're a team that just never goes for it with that route. And it's like, yeah, you hit on Emmanuel quickly, great, but it feels like they need to change the way that they – even the – I know they didn't know what they had in Julius Randle, but like taking Obi Toppin too was sort of a curious decision to me in that spot anyway. Yeah. Um, even if Tyrese Halberton wasn't your guy. So that's what they need. I just don't, I don't think there's anyone on this team that's good enough, including Emmanuel quickly, RJ Barrett, that should dictate who or what you're, you're prioritizing it in the lottery. And, and that's, a, I think, a great way to put a bow on this segment with the Knicks right here. It's impossible for me to sit here and try to project different guys that they should or shouldn't draft. Like they just have to make a decision for what they as an organization want to do moving forward, whether it's longer term, shorter term, positionally, how they move things around, because pretty much everything is a need in some form or fashion with this team. This is all going to end with them giving up like eight first round picks um, to get Bradley Beal or somebody. <laughs> that's, that's how this is actually going to end. I would actually be in support of that one, but neither here nor there. Uh, let's go to the Charlotte Hornets, a, a team that finished this season with a winning record, 43 and 39. And they have their star player to build around. And that's LaMelo Ball. He carried this offense single-handedly to a winning season. Uh, what I see is a frustrating lack of synergy or of just thoughtfulness into how the, the roster is really constructed, right? He's not a great defender. And they don't have a ton of great defenders around him. They have some, but not a ton of them. They don't have rim protection behind him to make up for some of the mistakes that might occur when you don't have great perimeter defense next to him. They've got a massive free agency decision to make coming up with Miles Bridges. 
And that's probably the first place to start here, Dan. What's going to happen with Bridges and how's that going to impact the rest of their offseason plan? They're going to have to pay him. I don't know if there's a team out there that will have cap space and is willing to, you know, put the onus of a decision on them. Uh, but he's going to cost you near max money at this point. And you didn't move him during the middle of the season. You didn't look to move him before that. You didn't sign him to an extension that I would argue probably would have cost you less than nine figures over the life of it. And now it's going to cost you nine figures. I would, I would guess, or at least way more, way closer to it than it would have been before. You have to pay it and hope that he hasn't peaked. I was a little bit, I thought he was going to win most improved player at one point this season, like through the first half of it, even when his three wasn't falling, but just some of the shooting stuff that is a concern to me. And it often sort of feels like he's a versatile defender. So long as you're okay with his decisions, taking you nowhere, if that makes any sense, where it's like his versatility feels it's like empty calories, versatility, which I don't mean to be that harsh, but that's what it feels like. You're going to have to pay him though, unless there's a sign and trade scenario, which I think those are, transactions that could be in vogue this summer i would just i'd bet against it in this situation yeah they got to throw the bag at whatever right because they just another small market situation where you can't afford to just see him walk out the door right like he's in complete control of the situation now yeah i mean like he they can match whatever he gets so like but he definitely has leverage over them where it's if i'm another team like if i'm detroit knowing that charlie's probably gonna have to match it like if i can if you really want jalen brunson then yeah this is a problem you don't want to tie up your cast bait and someone you're not going to get i would totally try and mess with charlotte's books and just throw him a max because they're not going to have any option other than to to match it so once they do that let's let's say that uh that what we're projecting ends up happening and they do match and they find a way to pay miles bridges and he gets the bag how do they improve this roster and this defense is there anything that they can do through other trades through free agency with whatever budget they have left like at, at this point it seems like great now you've kept bridges he's a really good second or third piece but how do you address the biggest needs on this roster? Is it really just Gordon Hayward and trying to figure out how to move on from him and getting the right pieces back? Or are there other tools at their disposal to, to just improve around the margins? Yeah, I, th- I think they just need to focus on beefing up their interior defense. And even if they think that Kai Jones is going to be that guy, like there needs to be a veteran presence there. Uh, and it's not Mason Plumley. Uh, it's definitely not Montrezl Harrell either for that matter. And it's, you know, PJ Washington at the five, like that's only going to get you so far as well. You're not going to have money to spend, but we just talked about how cheap quality or rotation level bigs tend to be. And so like with the mid-level exception that you're going to have, you know, does that get Kevon Looney to leave Golden State? Like that's someone who's not big in the traditional sense, but he improves your defense, at least with his switchability and the way it seems like you want to play. Or the alternative would be, and I, I, I'm i assuming they're not going to be able to afford a Nick Claxton or a Mitchell Robinson. Those are two guys that would help them as well. Explore signing trades or explore just flat out trades. Like there will be bigs um, who are available. And I think that needs to be the priority. And whether it's, that's, going to be a philosophical question do you go the route of well we're going to go all in for rudy gobert or miles turner or is it a mid-end option like a stopgap like nerland's noel or if you can get mitchell robinson in the side and trade they're gonna to have to figure that one out but i don't think that solves i mean rudy gobert solves your defense but i feel like their defense gets a huge boost if they actually put someone who can direct what's happening in the interior and be a, a viable rim protector and, and rebounder for them yeah and, and for for those like those of you out there listening, just so that we're very clear, it's not a simple 
scenario of, well, if Miles Bridges signs elsewhere, then they just use that money on bringing another big man. Like that's the way that the cap is set up. They're not going to have the space to replace that type of value. So if Bridges is gone, they can't just go out there and sign or trade for the biggest guy. They're going to have to offload Gordon Hayward's contract in order to do that, which speaking of Hayward, I mean, what, what can we expect with him moving forward? It seems like there's kind of a rocky relationship developing in Charlotte or at the very least his time there might be done. Yeah, the report that he wants a change of scenery, I'm sure the Hornets would like to see him somewhere other than the bench as well, injured. So I thought that was kind of curious, uh, but like his is not a net positive deal, nor is Terry Rozier's anymore after he's going to have that $96 million extension kick in next season. I don't know what value you're getting for Gordon Hayward. People have mentioned like the Russell Westbrook scenario. If you watch the Hornets this season and think Russell Westbrook is the answer in any way, shape, or form, I would question what you're actually watching there. If you wanted to reset and it's like, oh, we're getting off of the Terry Rozier and Gordon Hayward contracts as part of this, where we're going to have clearer books and more flexibility moving forward. And you're tearing it down a little bit that I would understand, but I don't know. Like if you give up Gordon Hayward, I, I don't know like what that would Washington's not even going to do Kristaps for Gordon Hayward at this point. Like that's how far his value has probably fallen and you can't, and you should not attach a James book Knight or a Kai Jones or any picks uh, and you owe a 2023 one to Atlanta, the protections on it make it difficult. If you actually want someone of value for Gordon Hayward, it's going to probably have to be a borderline mega deal where you're either taking back some bad money or more likely given what Charlotte, you know, they seem obsessed with remaining in the middle of the Eastern conference. It's what are we attaching to Gordon Hayward to get someone who's a better fit for this roster or who actually wants to be here. Well, speaking specifically to the draft, I think that there is the perfect guy in that like 13th or 14th pick scenario who can help them on the defensive end. And that's Mark Williams out of Duke. I don't know if you watched the final four or excuse me, the the NCAA tournament at all and saw how he played. Like he was, he was great and earned a lot of money on his next NBA deal by moving himself up in the draft. I think 13 is a right place to take him because he's, he's proven that he can be at least an impactful NBA player from day one, if not a starter. But the Hornets are probably going to want to make a little bit more urgent of a push because any big man that you draft to come in and be your center, it takes at least two years to develop them into an NBA caliber rim protector. I don't know if they have that time, right? There, there's probably the clock is starting to tick on making sure that you keep LaMelo Ball happy. Um, Which is wild to think about. I would yeah, still yeah. default towards... I'll believe someone's not going to sign the rookie extension when I actually see it. And so I would say you have at least five to six years of him under team control, but to what you just said, and I actually really wanted to ask you this on a tangent yeah. since you're a coach yeah. is the way the fan base reacted to this season, when this team won the equivalent of five or six more games, looking at their winning percentage than last year over the course of a full season. And the fact that they weren't bottom 10 in defense overall um, outside of you know garbage time, I felt like they overachieved or were at least right on schedule. And yet there were calls for James Borrego's job, um, what, calling James Booknight a bust and the Kai Jones not playing enough. And I guess if you wanted them to play the youngsters more, but I will say it does feel like this team is always kind of prioritized slightly more gradual development. They did it with Lamelo. He obviously came along like quicker than this, but like they haven't just thrown their young guys, at least under James Borrego into the fire. And I'm just curious how much, one, those stances are even valid to you. And how much blame could you actually assign to James Borrego for this team defensively? If the, the biggest criticism I've seen is that he didn't maximize Mason Plumley, And I'm like, 
awesome. Like if your job is to maximize Mason Plumley on defense, like you're already screwed. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, maybe I'm way too much of a coach defender, but it mostly comes back to roster construction at the end of the day. Like it, coaches, they add value in a lot of different ways go on behind the scenes, but there are so many smart tactical coaches out there that it's not necessarily going to be that much of a difference if you get rid of Borrego and bring in somebody else just with this exact same roster. Like it might add you a few wins. It might please your stars a little bit more, have a different change of message. Like look at the Boston Celtics here. They're not this much better because Ime Udoka is that much better of a coach than Brad Stevens. They're this much better because they got rid of Evan Fournier and Kemba Walker, and they don't have any bad defenders in their lineup at all. So they, the now. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, right. And Jason Tatum took the leap to being an MVP candidate. Like that's why the Celtics got better. It's not that what Ime Udoka is doing is that much better. It's a different voice. It's a different style. And sometimes, and it's hard to diagnose from the outside. That's really helpful and important. But Borrego is not at fault for scheme, for not maximizing the personnel that they have. That's a group defensively that's really hard to maximize. So I'm glad it, I'm not out of my mind for thinking alongside those those no. guys. And, and look, I don't know if they're going to draft a big man, if that's really the need that they try to pigeonhole themselves into, but they should at least draft a defender somewhere on their roster, right? So there are, there are a lot of guys that could make sense there. Mark Williams, I think Dyson Daniels, I said before, a really competent Lonzo Ball type. Like I even think somebody like uh, like Jeremy Sohan out of Baylor, who's a, a really long athletic guy who could end up being like a little bit more offensive minded Jaden McDaniels. Fascinating piece to try to get there with that roster as insurance slash somebody that can play alongside a Bridges or a Washington. And that's like, we talk about their bigs. They need quality perimeter defenders too. Their best perimeter defender is... Kelly Oubre Jr. or is it Jalen McDaniels? Like, is it who am I missing? I'm not missing anyone obvious, am I? So I don't think so. It's yeah, it's it's tough. And and look, if you don't have a rim protector, you can get away with it if you have really good perimeter defenders. But the Hornets don't have that. So I think the easier fix is bring in a rim protector. Question is, you go draft? Do you try to go free agency or trade? And then how does that relate to your decision making here with what could be the 13th pick? I am not Russell Westbrook to Charlotte. That's the moral. Of no, 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 no. Dan, we got one last pick here. Uh, one last team to go through. And that's the Cleveland Cavaliers 44 and 38 major overachieved season for them. And I was really impressed with the foresight of their front office to put together a unique team on the floor because they drafted Evan Mobley last year and played him in a twin towers type of lineup with Jared Allen. The two of them anchored a really good defense and Darius Garland emerged as an all-star caliber guard. A year ago at this time, I don't know if you remember, so many questions about Garland or Sexton. Who do you really, like this year at least, put that to rest. Now you still got to figure out what to do with Sexton. And you got to figure out what you're going to try to do to build this roster around Garland in two bigs. Because like you mentioned earlier, this season has been a little bit more for them about defense, defense, defense will punt the shooting a little bit sustainably over the long term. That's not how you can build a contender. So Dan, let's start with Sexton. Do, do they just let him walk at this point? Like what's the best way to maximize everything coming up for Sexton? I, I'm just super fascinated by what this summer is going to have in store for him. 
Yeah, him coming off that season-ending injury is big. I don't. I still don't think you could let him walk. I know you have Lavert and you have Garland. Like you're still set up fine without him. That's still a Zach Lowe has said this. Colin Styson might have had the most like disrespected 24 points per game season in NBA history on efficient shooting, like 37 plus from three, 50 plus percent on twos. I know he's not the greatest player, but like there's value in that player. And so if you don't want him, you either need to match what, what other teams are offering and then look at moving him later, see if maybe you can try staggering him in Levert and Garland. Maybe there's something there because your offense isn't good enough, by the way, to just say, get rid of that firepower. And you lost Ricky Rubio to injury and then trade. That was someone who was a very important, like connective tissue for your offense. Sexton isn't the same. I'm just saying you're not in a position to be like, we don't need what Sexton does at this point. And I would, I would, if I'm them, I prefer a sign and trade just to have a more immediate answer to the problem. You know, we just mentioned, I didn't want to bring this up with that team to spoil it. But like, do you do Kispert and Kentavious uh, Caldwell Pope and a sign and trade for Sexton, depending on how much he's making? That's something that maybe Washington can talk themselves into. I'd like it for Cleveland. I think you need to look at those types of scenarios, but I don't think they functionally can afford to probably let him walk, but I do feel like philosophically it hurts like the assets at their disposal to continue improving this team. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a fair point here. I mean, let me just ask you in a different way then. Do you think a year from now, Colin Sexton is in a Cleveland Cavaliers uniform? I do not. And I think there's probably more potential for me to be wrong and anyone who thinks that way to be wrong than we're giving just because, you know, Karis LeVert is heading into the last year of his deal. And so it's like, they're not really married to him or Sexton. They could just go through next season, see which one's the better fit. um, And maybe they're trading LeVert again at the deadline. Uh, But my guess would just be no, because I think knowing what Garland's going to cost and his extension um, and you're, you might be able to get Levert at a similar number to what he's at now, if you wanted to keep him. And my guess is Colin Sexton still gets more, or at least his next deal will be longer. Um, whether they match it or it's a sign and trade. I do think that he'll probably finish next season on another team. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's fair. So let's again, operate under that assumption. If Colin Sexton is gone, what's the biggest need for this team? Is it just shooting or should they be in a position to say, we really need another scoring two guard, somebody who can play off the ball a little bit more than Sexton might have, but that ultimately is going to be the formula that helps us Garland and another really good scorer and our two big guys on the back line to just clean everything up. We can find a three and D wing to plug in the holes later. I still think I'd rather see this team have like wing size shooting to where Larry Markinen doesn't need to play the three or can you upgrade the Isaac Okoro spot? or maybe you play Isaac Okora with whoever you're getting uh, because while having that like second creator or second score would be great. You do have like at least one, like it could be Levert or if we're assuming even Sexton's not there, you still technically have Levert. And so I would skew more towards shooting. And also I go that way because I want to see more of Evan Mobley, like running the offense. And it's when you sort of watch him, there's mechanically or aesthetically, it's like, Kevin Durant and Kevin Garnett together. He doesn't have the ball skills of Kevin Durant. I'm not saying that just aesthetically watching him. Let's just see what that comes of. And you created all this chaos by going with these triple big lineups defensively. Maybe let's create a little chaos by like, is like Evan Mobley running the ball up the floor even more than he did? Or are you trying to run set actions through him in the half court? Maybe you're sacrificing wins, but this is still a team as good as they were this season that I do think needs to be thinking bigger picture. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's fair. And and thinking to the draft specifically, there are a lot of guys that are going to be around in that late lottery range who can fit that mold of an immediate impact. So 
One name that I think commonly gets projected around here is O'Shea Agbaji from Kansas, just won a national championship. He's an elite corner three-point shooter, more of your three and D type of wing. I think he's a very clear and clean fit in Cleveland if, if he's still available at the 14th pick. I think that it's not out of the realm of possibility that a guy like Johnny Davis out of Wisconsin would fall there uh, or that they would take a swing on maybe a Jaden Hardy out of the G League Ignite, who probably has one of the two or three highest ceilings in, in terms of being a scorer. Um, but that might have a little bit of overlap with what you get out of a Colin Sexton. Another three and D wing that I just want to bring up here that I think would be really interesting for them would be uh, Blake Wesley out of Notre Dame. He's a longer term option, but he has a little bit of Levert to him. So uh, I, I think that adding a couple of those guys, a really good defender, 6'11 wingspan, like, like the way that he creates and, and has three level scoring potential. I would love to see a guy like him wind up in Cleveland as well. Uh, Dan, just one follow-up question on the entirety of these teams. We obviously don't know how free agency, the offseason draft is going to play out. Is there one team that you think is in the best position to make a push for the postseason next year based on the assets at their disposal, the players on their roster, et cetera? Yeah, so Cleveland's the obvious one, and I think the answer, just because of how transcendent Evan Mobley was already defensively, that said – they arguably might have just played one of, depending on what you could get for Sexton, like what is the move out there? They're not going to have cap space. So what is the move out there to make upgrades? The team that's just ultra flexible. And if they wanted to, I'm just going to go back to Indiana. Like they can do, they can do stuff. And maybe it's just keeping this roster intact and adding what would be a top five pick, but they have, or even is it attaching something to Malcolm Brogdon to changing up the way your roster looks? Uh, so it wouldn't, it would be predicated on them actually wanting to win now, but they're a team that I look at and say, as currently constructed, if you add whatever you do in the draft and then hit on some of your, what if TJ Warren is healthy and they resign him? Like, that's not something we talked about enough this season. They're a team that I could see being like making a huge jump in the standings next season. Yeah. Yeah. They could be certainly one of those like six through nine seeds in the Eastern conference in, in that type of scenario. So you have a team on this list. What is your pick for it? I do. Charlotte is it for me because I think that they can not break the bank to address their rim protection needs. I think that there's going to be a smart enough way out there for them to maneuver the market to get something positive uh, out of Gordon Hayward, whether that's cap space, whether that's, you know, just not taking back a massive contract, whatever it ends up being. Um, but I, I think that LaMelo Ball is going to continue to get better. And, and I, I think that that's, you know, having a lottery pick this year is really going to help them. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point too. A lot of teams to consider. None of them, the Knicks to be the answer to that question, but Charlotte's a good one. Sorry to break your heart, but Dan, you made my week by coming on here and, and joining us with the podcast. Always great to talk to you before you get out of here, please let the people know what do you have going on? Where can they find you on social media and other projects that you're involved in? Yeah, they can follow my work at Bleacher Report, uh, where I cover the NBA full-time there. And I also host my own podcast that Spins has been nice enough to come on like at least a dozen times at this point, uh, at Hardwood Knox, spelled exactly as it sounds on Twitter. So go check us out over there. And I'm on Twitter where you can find all the work that I do, at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E. Dan Lilly's a Favalli. Always great to spend some time with you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for embracing the hashtag, ban the take foul. And uh, we look forward to hopefully, potentially doing this again with the Western Conference. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Spins. All right.